Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.41 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It is the 10th day of July, 2023, and this is episode 752 of Bitcoin and the Circle P. The Circle P is a club for plebs that want to sell their goods and services through me because I'm just giving basically, you know, advertising for the guys that can't afford advertising. And if uh, one of these guys gets a sale because they heard it here on the show and you got to tell them that, you got to tell them that you heard it from the Bitcoin and podcast. Otherwise they don't know where the hell they, they made a sale from because if they do hear that they got it a sale from the circle P on the Bitcoin and podcast, they give me a cut depending on how much they feel is, you know, whatever the advertising was worth. And to be fair, I've actually sold a fair bit of comfrey from Shishi, but today, Today, we're going to be talking about Dubravko, also known as Oak Grove on Noster. His end pub will be in the show notes for the Circle P. What does he sell? He sells Black Soldier Fly Larva. Uh, I'm going this week. I'm, I started last night putting together the uh, notes that I'm going to be using for a full episode on the Black Soldier Fly, and as of late on Noster, I've posted a couple of, uh, well, at least one video, and actually, I think it's two, about uh, Black Soldier Fly and what they're capable of, and you're, you, if you have any room on your property, I would not put these inside. Some people have earthworm bins inside their house, and hey, that's great, because if you do it right, there's virtually no smell. Uh, black soldier fly, not so much. It's not a rancid odor. It's not a rotten odor, but it is It is an odor. And it's actually in that odor, by the way, comes in handy for other things. I will be talking about all of that on an episode later this week. I'm not exactly sure when. There's a lot of stuff to put together for it because the black soldier fly is a really handy critter to have. So you would want to do this outside. Um, but very, it's a very useful thing to have on your property. If you have, you know, any more than a postage stamp of land outside your house, you too can be a black soldier fly guy. And especially if you're like raising chickens, uh, you'll, you'll want these. And again, I will go through all of that later this week when I put that show together and record it. In either event, Dubrovko, a.k.a. Oak Grove, that is at Oak Grove on Noster. Uh, let them know that you want to buy some Black Soldier Fly larvae. You'll probably want to wait until the damn show that I actually do so you so that you know why you want the Black Soldier Fly larvae. And maybe uh, Oak Grove will uh, cut me a little bit of the proceeds of that sale because you heard it here first on Bitcoin and now the news. <clears throat> Bitcoin is winning the regulatory landscape 
and Bitcoin-only companies will too. Okay, Bitcoin Magazine, Julian Lineger, Lineger, I think is how you pronounce it. Bitcoin exists for a couple of reasons. As money that anyone, anywhere can use, and as a monetary good that is guaranteed not to be diluted or devalued by a central bank. But it's also a piece of software that deliberately takes away the power of insiders. No matter if those insiders are large miners or Bitcoin whales, what we've seen in the larger cryptocurrency space over the past few years has been a perversion of those ideas and principles. The fact that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is finally waking up to those shenanigans is something that was to be expected. The pursuit of exponential profits with very little upfront investment of time, brain power, or capital has not just helped crypto token Ponzi schemes take off, it has allowed rent seekers like FTX, BlockFi, Luna, Celsius, Three Errors Capital, and countless Web3 projects to be perceived as innovations instead of just pure cash grabs. While it's a venture capitalist job to put bets on what he or she believes will make money and shape the future of technology, the sheer audacity with which the crypto Ponzi industry's insiders pushed their agendas in recent years has been unbelievable. We have read the stories of a former Coinbase manager sentenced to two years in prison for front-running its users, and we know that Andreessen Horowitz, otherwise known as A16Z, one of the largest VC firms in the space, has shilled Ponzi schemes like Helium. The marketing approach of A16Z has had for its projects was summed up by Corey Clipston. Quote, hmm. Most Bitcoiners that promote Bitcoin are just buying and holding as much as possible. And people who love it the most are the people who never sell. It's kind of the exact opposite of what you see with the likes of A16Z. Full frontal assault, marketing through all their channels, executing massive pumps after they've bought a bunch of cheap Solana from the centralized team that controls it in the spring of 2021. They and all their VC friends were selling the top in late 2021 while claiming to the world that they were hodling, end quote. Everyone who learns more about Bitcoin will soon realize that it isn't perfect. The block size debate is luckily behind us, but full mempools and new things like the Ordinals Protocol show the scalability is still a thing to be fully figured out. I believe that the Lightning Network, as well as similar solutions, offer a viable path towards secure, fast, and affordable transactions, but we're not there yet. Trying to improve the Bitcoin network is a noble cause, and if you feel that it can be done, giving it a try on your own is a legitimate thing to do, but the Bitcoin spinoffs we have seen over the years all failed in terms of adoption, brand value, and price. We know that ICOs in the 2017 or in 2017 were largely cash grabs among retail investors with little to no real innovation or market proof up until now. Hollow buzzwords like blockchain soon vanished just to be replaced by even vaguer concept of Web3 in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So you play stupid games and you win stupid prizes. Today, there are thousands of crypto tokens out there with a vast number of them created from the beginning as blatant Ponzi schemes without any long-term vision other than to benefit a very small group of insiders. Honestly, I would have preferred to let the market decide their fate and not regulators. But the reality is that the United States is now cracking down on them after the SEC failed miserably when it came to stopping people like 
former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, SEC boss Gary Gensler, recently made clear that Bitcoin is a commodity and therefore does not fall into the domain of his agency. And now, in the SEC's lawsuit against Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange, Gensler appears to be preparing to crack down on the crypto Ponzi's as it includes severe accusations against the company itself and also states that a range of crypto projects should be defined as securities and those include big names like Solana, Cardano, and Polygon. I don't want to cheer for the SEC or any other regulator because we all know that in the United States we barely managed to dodge a 30% energy tax on Bitcoin mining. And the powerful people who don't want Bitcoin to win will find other angles through which to attack it. But at the same time, Bitcoiners had been warning about FTX, Terra Luna, and other shady crypto projects from day one. I'm sorry for every person who burned their fingers and lost money by trusting those criminals, but it's also understandable that Bitcoiners are rightfully celebrating this told you so moment. I'm pausing to say I'm not exactly celebrating it. I'm not celebrating I told you so. I, I don't want to see people go mortgage the homes that they and their families live in to buy Matic or a, AKA Polygon or fucking Cardano and then get wiped out and now their family has no place to live. There's no celebration there. All right. Most of the Bitcoiners that I know are not actually celebrating. They are saying, I told you so, but we've been saying that or I've been saying that since at least 2015. And I certainly have been saying it on this show since uh, late 2018. Anyway, I digress, love it or hate it. The market and crypto assets regulation is the first comprehensive regulatory framework for cryptocurrencies in a major economic zone. Unless you think the free market should take care of scams and bad actors, which would be a fair point, you probably see MICA as a step in the right direction. At least it's a different approach than the burn it all down vibes we were getting from the Democratic Party, the SEC, and other actors inside the United States. But MICA is a starting point rather than the end when it comes to trying to tame the crypto Wild West in Europe. A few days after signing MICA into law in May of 2023, A study published by none other than the European Parliament came to the conclusion that MICA needs to take further steps if it's really to work. In fact, the study came to a similar conclusion as what we already see unfolding in the United States. It advises that lawmakers should take a closer look at things like DeFi, staking, NFTs, and most importantly, all crypto assets should be treated as securities by default. I think that no matter what will happen in terms of regulation, it's important to remember what makes Bitcoin unique and why we are here in the first place. It's an asset that you can really own, living on a network that no one can shut down or control. This is it. As Adam Back recently said, Bitcoin is anti-fragile to regulatory pressures, and we can already see that this is the key difference between random crypto projects and Bitcoin. Again, not cheering for more regulation. I believe in a free market, and I think that with or without laws, bad actors will be flushed out eventually. On the other hand, I feel for everyone who gets scammed and loses money in shameless crypto scams. So, I also understand why some guardrails are needed, especially when bad faith actors are disguising themselves as tech innovators. Companies that focus on Bitcoin and offer real, non-custodial BTC will thrive. Players who offer countless 
shady Ponzi tokens to their newbie users will not only face regulatory scrutiny, but also lose the trust of their customers when tokens that were once promoted as the next big things start heading to zero amid harsher regulation. Now, more than a decade after Satoshi Nakamoto invented true digital scarcity, the Bitcoin network stands stronger than ever as the one true cryptocurrency, an asset that cannot be diluted, cannot be easily changed, and that doesn't have a small group of founding insiders who dictate the rules. I don't know what the future holds for Bitcoin, but I know that a lot of the things that Bitcoiners like me have been repeating about crypto and why Bitcoin is different rings true today more than ever. Well, of course, and that's the end of the the article, by the way. But getting back to the cheering the collapse of people that have lost their money. I'm not, no, that's not it. Anybody who is actually really excited that another human being got scammed out of their life savings is just as bad as the people who did the scamming in the first place. I'm sorry, but that's just that's just the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't, I don't know, maybe breathe a sigh of relief or, you know, have some kind of, you know, tacit understanding that you were right. Because we, you know, that that's the whole thing. We've been telling people to not buy this crap. These people are all scammers. They, they're, they're, their existence, their mere existence on this planet is nothing more than a force of nature trying to steal your, your time on this planet. Because those forces of nature are everywhere, whether they're in crypto, whether they're in fiat, whether they're in banking, whether they're in just some fiat job that doesn't give a shit about you. It's all here to steal your time. Because that's the one true thing that is actually, truly scarce. The only other thing, of course, is is Bitcoin, but uh, you know that. <clears throat> now, speaking of scammers, legal proceedings start for Terraform Labs co-founder in South Korea, Turner Wright Cointelegraph. Terraform Labs co-founder Shin Hyung Shong, also known as Daniel Shin, has reportedly had his first hearing for charges related to the allegedly illicit profits from the sale of Terra, or the Terra Luna thing. According to a July 10th report from News One Korea, a trial preparation hearing for Shin and seven, count them seven, alleged accomplices began in Seoul Southern District Court following his indictment in April. Prosecutors have reportedly said that they deceived investors and manipulated the prices of certain tokens through media coverage and transactions starting in 2018, resulting in unfair profits of roughly, Jesus, 462.9 billion Korean won, which is about $354 million U.S. at the time of publication. Shin reportedly sold roughly $118 million worth of Luna prior to the price of the token crashing in May of 2022. He later went on to found the fintech firm Chai Corporation, where he reportedly employed similar tactics to illicitly profit from investor fundage. The attorney for Shin had previously denied reports suggesting that he sold Luna at a high point and realized profits or that he made profits through other illegal methods. So there you go. He's going on going on trial. Duquan's probably going to be next. Uh, he's still, he was arrested in Montenegro and is probably going to be facing court pretty, pretty quickly. But hey, somebody's getting theirs. I, well, I don't know. Will they get theirs? That's a, that's a good question. Will they? 
or what, is it just going to be a show trial and they get a slap on the wrist and they're just released and next thing you know they open up another exchange honestly that would not surprise me so if you hear daniel shin's name behind any company from now until you know forever run don't walk away from whatever it is that he is selling that goes for uh duquan as well now bitcoin magazine btc casey has this one artificial intelligence and bitcoin companies unite for ai for all hackathon to democratize artificial intelligence AI and Bitcoin companies are teaming up to host the AI for All Hackathon, a month-long event aimed at democratizing artificial intelligence with the help of Bitcoin, Lightning, and Fediment. Organized by Fedi and Stack, the hackathon will take place remotely on the Bolt.Fun, that's Bolt.Fun, and Replit platforms from July the 1st to the end of the month, July 31st, 2023. Participants will have the opportunity to engage in workshops, coding sessions, tutorials, and mentorships led by industry experts from both the AI and Bitcoin ecosystems. Quote, we're at a critical moment in the development of generative AI that will help determine whether it is controlled by centralizers, sensors, and legacy institutions or by free and empowered people and communities, say the organizers in a press release sent to Bitcoin Magazine. The event is presented in collaboration with Replit and has garnered sponsorship from companies such as Hivemind, Spirit of Satoshi, ZBD, and Prem. Additional support comes from Voltage, Lightning Labs, Blockstream, Albi, Bolt.Fun, Lightspark, and Base58. So, that's going on all this month. I brought that to you last week, but it's worth noting again in case you want to be part of that. If you want to be part of AI for All Hackathon, then you need to go over to was it bolt.fun. Yeah, bolt, yeah, bolt.fun as in like, you know, bolt. Nuts and bolts. Dot fun as in habit. Because Sarah Silverman is not having any fun. She's suing Meta and open AI for copyright violations. That does not sound fun, but Savannah Fortas tells us more from Cointelegraph. The American comedian and author Sarah Silverman, along with two other authors, Richard Kadri and Christopher Golden, have filed lawsuits against Meta Platforms LL or the Llama and AI's or Open AI's Chat GPT for copyright infringement. But this is interesting. Meta and OpenAI allegedly use the plaintiff's content to train their respective artificial intelligence systems without prior permission. According to the court documents against Meta, many of the plaintiff's books under copyright appear in the data set that Meta had admitted to using to train Llama, their large language model. Similarly, oh, hold on. Did I get something? Somebody sent me something. Sorry about that. I got, I, I, you know, shiny things distract me. According to the court documents against Meta, uh, no, 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 sorry. Similarly, in the case against OpenAI, the lawsuit alleges that when ChatGPT generates summaries of the plaintiff's work, it, it indicates the training via copyrighted content. Quote, The summaries get some details wrong. This is expected since a large language model mixes together expressive material derived from many sources. Still, the rest of the summaries are accurate, end quote. 
In order to obtain this data, the suit claims that the companies retrieve the copyrighted data from what are known as shadow libraries such as Bibliotech, uh, Library Genesis, Z Library, and others. These shadow libraries are websites that use torrent systems to make books available in bulk, says the lawsuit. Such sites are illegal and are unlike open source data that come from databases such as Gutenberg, which collects books that have copyrights that have run out. Quote, the shadow libraries have long been of interest to the AI training community because of the large quantity of copyrighted material that they host. End quote. Along with complaints about copyright infringement of their own personal work, the authors filed the complaint on behalf of a class of copyright owners across the United States whose works were also allegedly infringed. Copy, sorry, Cointelegraph reached out to OpenAI and neither responded to uh, the publication in May. Writers across the U.S. who are part of the Writers Guild of America took to the streets in an authorized strike, the first one in 15 years, which highlighted many issues faced in the industry, including the usage of AI. All right, so <clears throat> that's the end of the article, but that's that's the thing. So there's there's some basic points here. One is that it's Sarah Silverman and a couple of other people alleging that their books were used to train the AI. The second point here is that it's a class action lawsuit against Meta and OpenAI. So where, where, who gets to read a book is my question. Now, I'm not saying that they don't have a leg to stand on here. They, they actually do. You know, lover or hater, Sarah Silverman did write a book. I don't know if it was ghostwritten or if she actually wrote it. I don't care. The fact of the matter is, is that it is a work of intellectual property and she owns that property by copyright. That's, you love it or hate it, that's the way copyright works, in, 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 at least in the West. I'm not sure about non-Western com- uh, countries, but in the West, if I write a book, I, I want to be able to, you know, I'd like to be able to make a buck off that thing. It shows a, it's a proof of work, right? But if I read it as a human, am I infringing her copyright? No. Because I bought, well, I guess, because I bought the book if if I were to buy that book. I'm not going to buy the book. But if I did, I would have paid money for it. Therefore, that's sort of the way that the copyright works. Somebody writes a book. They do proof of work. You want you want to read that, that work? Well, you got to pay money for it. In the case of AI, it's a machine that's reading it. So is there going to be an argument that because it's a machine reading this work, that it does not fall under the auspices of what we deem as a copyright transaction. In other words, the transaction where I buy the book, so I buy basically I buy the usage of that copyright for my own personal use. It this is going to be a real interesting one because if a machine reads the book and the court for whatever reason, says, look, it's not a human, therefore yeah, copyrights don't apply, uh, which won't happen, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. I'm just saying that now it's become part of this large language model. Will I be infringing Sarah Silverman's copyright if I use chat GPT at all? Because her work is now somewhere buried in a sea of other work, am I liable 
If I just ask chat GPT a simple question, like who is, who is Sarah Silverman? And I get an answer or I, or I say, can you give me an example of some of Sarah Silverman's written work? Okay. Right there. That's not outside the realm of possibility. Will they track me down and throw me in jail? Most likely not. But the the whole point that I'm saying is this ends up being where we are right now with artificial intelligence and copyright and what types of copyright infringement are presenting themselves in this new world that we find ourselves in. It's going to be real interesting. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, there's going to be whole sections of law firms that convert two or three or five or 15 lawyers and a set of staff that just work on AI copyright shit. I guarantee it. It's coming. God only knows what styles of injunctions against meta and open AI and, and all that. But here's what's not going to happen. Sure. They could shut down meta. Meta could actually might even have to scrap Llama. Who knows? But Llama's already out there. I can train it myself. Chat GPT, not so much, but there are other, there's other stuff out there. There's a whole slew at, what is it? Uh, facehugger.com or org or something. I think it's facehugger.org. You can go there and find all manner of different free and open source software, free and open source software solutions that take the place of chat GPT. And some of them are very, very good. And then if I train them on Sarah Silverman's work, I am indeed probably, uh, you know, violating her copyright, but this shit's not going to stop, but you do need to be careful as to what you use the output of your queries for. Are you going to publish them? Uh, you might want to be careful. Just take care out there, guys. Take, take very, very good care of what you're doing. Just don't assume everything is going to be all right and that there's no possible way that you could get into trouble. Just, just have a care is all I'm saying. Now, before we get to the numbers, we'll do this last one. Coindesk, Laya Ledesama. I think is how you pronounce it. Bitcoin could rise to $120,000 by the end of 2024, according to standard charter. So if you need a get old, big old bong hit of hopium, here it comes, pal. Bitcoin, the world's largest cryptocurrency by market value, could rise to $50,000 by the end of this year and up to $120,000 by the end of next year. Chartered, sta- sorry, Standard Chartered Bank said in a research report on Monday. The British multinational bank, Standard Chartered Bank, increased its Bitcoin price forecast from the $100,000 predicted in April. Standard Charter said at the time that the that Bitcoin had the potential to reach that level because of several factors, one of them being the banking sector crisis. Quote, we now think this estimate is too conservative and we therefore see upside to our end of 2024 target. Bitcoin has climbed 80% since the start of the year and is currently trading around 30,100. The report cites increased Bitcoin miner profitability as one of the factors that will drive the price this time, as if it didn't all the other times, whatever. Quote, the rationale here is that as well as maintaining the Bitcoin ledger, miners play a key role in determining net supply of newly mined BTC, wrote uh, Jeff Kendrick, head of FX and digital asset research. 
Increased miner profitability per Bitcoin mined means miners can sell less of their output while maintaining cash flows, reducing net Bitcoin supply and thus pushing the prices higher, according to the report. Well, welcome to Bitcoin, motherfucker, because this has been going on every halving. I mean, all the mining has always been about this, whether it's been whether it started out as just a curiosity And then as it grew into a fully fledged industry, it's always been the same thing. And by the way, the fact that they use the term miners as the guys that actually control, not control, bring into being the new Bitcoin, while that's functionally and directionally and technically true, it doesn't take all the miners as a group to do that. If every miner on the face of the planet, except for one with a single S7 that was still functionally mining and all the rest of them got ejected out into the sun somehow, it would still be producing Bitcoin, right? So miners as a group doesn't really apply here. It does, but it doesn't because the the, the whole point is that I'm saying is that all it takes is a couple of nodes and a single miner, couple of users making transactions. And even if they don't make transactions, guess what? The Bitcoin still gets mined. The The subsidy that we have at 6.25 Bitcoin per block mined is also not dependent on if there's any transactions. The block is going to get mined, whether it's empty or not. The block is going to get mined if there's at least one miner on the network. So, the fact that they're group, they're saying miners as a group leads me to believe that they what? Don't fully understand Bitcoin. <laughs> I, lots of people don't understand Bitcoin. It's okay. Screw it. Let's run the numbers. What's going on with that Earl? West Texas Intermediate Earl is a, or no, not up, down 1.07% to $73.07 a barrel. Brent North Sea likewise down under a full point, $77.77. So $77.77. That's a row of sevens. That's a, shit, that's a Petra boost. Is it Petra? Striper, sorry, Striper boost. Although there was another Christian band named Petra. Uh, natural gas is up, however, almost two and a half points to $2.64 per thousand. Gasoline is down 0.76%. That's surprising because it's summer driving season to $2.56 a gallon. I don't know where you're going to get that price, but that's what futures and commodities from CNBC says. Gold is down scant. Uh, 1931 and 10 cents. Silver is up 0.2%. Platinum is up almost two points. Copper is up 0.11%. And palladium is down 0.69%. Lumber is up 3.21%. And it is, in fact, the biggest winner of the day for ag. The biggest loser is going to be cotton, two and a half points to the downside. Ah. I want my cotton sheets. Live cattle is up 0.1%. Lean hogs down 0.87%. Feeder cattle is down. No, actually is up a third. So there you go. We're all saved because most of the equities uh, indices are up. Dow is up a half a point 
S&P is up scant. NASDAQ, however, is down a quarter, while the S&P mini is up just over a full point. Screw all that noise. Bitcoin's at $30,297, according to bitinfocharts.com. That's after 322,000 BTC have changed hands in the last 24 hours. Average transaction value is 0.6 BTC. Median transaction value is literally a dime. 0.000033 BTC. I don't know if that's a mistake or not, but this probably isn't. Block times are low, very low. Nine minutes and 17 seconds. 0.09 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and 14.7 taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period with a, oh God, 0.84% decrease in hash rate. Ladies and gentlemen, we are still at 400 and 25 exahashes per second. Yeah, we hit a new all-time high yesterday sometime. Uh, Dogecoin is at 6.5 United States pennies, so that tells you what the rest of the shitcoin field is doing. $588.5 billion of market cap is 4.6% of gold's market cap. You may now purchase, if you so wish, 15.9 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19 million. 425,674.36 of 5,452 and a third of those are in the Lightning Network valued at $165.2 million. Uh, we have 16,344 nodes that we know about and 69,983 channels, payment channels that we can see. And 63.9% of all this is being run over TORS, 11,000. 812 nodes, or at least the ones that we know about. Uh, What else is going on here? Let's get into mempool and see what's going on here. Pretty cool. About 104 blocks carrying 206 unconfirmed transactions are waiting to clear. Uh, High priority transactions are 13 Satoshis per V-byte. Low priority is 8 Satoshis per V-byte. And anything under 2.13 Satoshis per V-byte are being purged from mempools around the country. And mempool.space is saying that the hash rate right now is 376.5 exahashes per second. Let me get into this uh, graph of hash rate and see what the high peak was. The high peak looks to be 453 exahashes per second. And that was July the 8th. Oh, okay. So yeah, on July the 8th. And now it's gone down to, uh, well, the graph says 422 uh, <clears throat> exahashes per second, which leads me to believe that this original number of hash rate is a moving average, the 376.5 exahashes per second. In fact, let me see about that. Hold on for a sec. Let me get back here. A hash rate moving average is 300 and, okay, yeah, that's 376 exahashes per second is the moving average. The only problem is I don't know what that moving average is based on. Is it a month? Is it a week? I, Hell if I know, but we've got other things to do. Uh, I, ooh, holy shit on a shingle. Dude, guys, I'm number four on fountain charts. Thank you. Wow, holy smokes. Let's get into this one and see if I can pull. Oh, good Lord, it's going to give me the shit, isn't it? Yeah. Come on, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Give me to, to episode 751 so I can read some boostograms, dude. All right, here we go. Holy shit. Okay. <clears throat> Henry G. Q. J. says with fifty fifty 
I wish you had been 5150. That would have been a good Van Halen boost. Uh, 5050 Sat says, sorry, screwed up all your boost comments. They disappeared, then reappeared. Just ignore most of the other ones. Thanks for making such a great show as always. No, thank you for listening to it because you guys are the guys that actually make the show what it is. And it, this is going to be a, holy shit. This is a string of Henry GG. So until I say otherwise, these are all Henry GG. Uh, let's see. With 5,000s. 5,000 sat says you. Another 5,000s. Let's get you to Nunya 1. <laughs> Plus maybe your node needs resetting. Maybe. It could be. Uh, five, another 5,000 says let's. Another 5,000 sat says get. And then 5,001 sats with the period. So, yeah, he kind of screwed that up. But I don't care. Why? Because he's supporting the show. That's all that matters, man. That's all that matters. Oh, my good friend Maple Trade, a.k.a. Bisnerds, with 4,125 sats, says, First online Maple Cell sale in a long time. She, she will be enjoying this week. Still love the idea of sending sats for a sale. I just wish I was a large company with tons of sales. Hopefully, a startup that can grow exponentially will lock onto Bitcoin and... He's talking about the the name of the podcast in this advertisement mechanism. Well, it takes time for all of this to occur. When you're bootstrapping something, it doesn't happen overnight. I've been working on this podcast for well over four years. I still don't have a sponsor. <laughs> it's a late, I mean, right now it's a labor of love, but that's everything. Is it worth doing? Well, then it's worth doing for longer than a day. You know, I saw, I actually saw, a well, it was a meme and it was, uh, what was it? It was uh, not intentionality. It was a picture, uh, then it had two words on it. It said, um, I don't know, like uh, your enthusiasm for doing a project versus persistence in doing the project. And underneath enthusiasm, it was like week one. And there was a huge flame week two. And there was like a little bit less of a flame and week three. And there was a little bit of less of the flame. And then weeks four and five, no flame where persistence was a medium sized flame emoji across weeks one through seven. That's persistence. That's and that's what it takes. And I know that that's what it takes because every single time I go on vacation, whether I put up old shows to, you know, so that there's not just dead space or not. My listenership crashes. It always does. Whether it's Christmas, summer, I, it doesn't matter. If I'm gone for a couple of weeks, I have to rebuild my entire listener set. It sucks, but it demonstrates persistence. It demonstrates the importance of persistence, which is why I will always bring you the circle P. And by the way, buys nerds, AKA maple trade <clears throat> is also in the circle P and I haven't heard from him in a while. Buys nerds, dude, you got to get back on Noster. DM me, do anything. Just let me know that you're breathing outside of throwing me a boost, which I, by the way, appreciate 1776 from NW says AI is the new asbestos. <laughs> Yegro with 751 says, glad to have you back, sir. This podcast helps keep me on the straight and narrow. Monord, Mon, yeah, Mo, Monored, Monored, maybe. 751 says, another banger. Thank you, sir. No, thank you. God's death. 370, thank you, sir. No, thank you. Uh, Bitgus with 100 says, in the process of putting comfrey and black locust trees all over my property. Bitgus with, with the black locust trees. 
you have to understand that they do send runners. If you're mowing, if I, I, I don't know what your property looks like. Okay. If you're concerned about them spreading, you've got to keep them chopped. You've got to keep the little runners that pop up chopped down in my backyard. I handled that with a lawnmower. I don't know what your property looks like, but be aware they do send runners. If you want to propagate, well then dig those runners up and cut the stem off like just above root level and plant that whole son of a bitch in the ground. You'll have a brand new tree, but it will send runners as well. Just guys be aware. Finally, pies with a hundred says the signal is strong. This is the way. No, actually you are the way you're the guys that make this possible. You're the guys that keep me coming back to bring you more. That's the weather report. Welcome to part two of the news that you can use. And I failed you miserably on Friday because I told you I was going to talk about threads. In fact, the, the, one of the words that was in the title of the damn show said threads. The name of the show was Twitter threads. And guess what? I didn't talk about threads. <laughs> okay. So we'll get into this one and I'll have a few words afterwards. Uh, decrypt.co <clears throat> Andre Bogonsky Instagram minus pick. Musk and Zuckerberg trade taunts as Twitter threat threads nears 100 million users. Holy shit. One of the biggest fights in social media history is underway as two tech giants, one long under fire, the other new but not, battle over ownership of the next text-based town square and their respective leaders are sparring directly. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg's Twitter replacement, Threads has come out swinging, rocketing toward 100 million users in its first week. The toe-to-toe tiff started with a surprise attack. Threads launched earlier than expected, feature incomplete but capitalizing on a very bad week for Musk and Twitter. The initial flurry of Threads signups has continued apace, and 93 million users who are largely converted Instagram users have joined the app so far, according to data platform Quiver Quantitative. Twitter owner Elon Musk spared little time in launching a counteroffensive on Saturday. He uncurled a jab at Zuckerberg's new platform, arguing that Threads is a dumbed-down version of Meta's Instagram that's devoid of what he claims was its main visual draw. Quote, Threads is just Instagram minus pics, which makes no sense, given that thirst pics are the main reason people use that app. How many times have you read comments on Instapix and wish there were more? Personally, never, Musk said. Musk's attempt to belittle threads can be seen as a competitive banter or as a sign that the combative CEO is under increasing pressure to navigate Twitter towards success. Several Twitter alternatives have emerged since Musk's acquisition of the app last October, whether that's startups like Blue Sky or Noster. Oh, for fuck's sake. Noster is not a startup. It's a protocol. Get it through your head. And it's a huge difference. Whatever. Whether that's startups like Blue Sky or Noster and open source centralized stalwart Mastodon soldiers on. But no challenger thus far has the same heft as Zuckerberg's threads backed by one of the largest names in tech. 
The 93 million threads account represents a sizable challenger to Twitter's current user base. Musk's dead bird app, he didn't say that, but I did, had 368 million users as of December of last year, a figure that's projected to decline over the course of this year, according to Statista. A light slap by comparison, Blue Sky has been downloaded only 1 million times by iOS and Android users, according to the App Store Intelligence Provided Data AI. And as an invite-only platform, its number of users is undoubtedly less. Noster appears to be a non-factor as well. <laughs> yeah, you wish. Measuring users in less straightforward because... Uh, oh, sorry, measuring users is less straightforward because of the social media protocol's technical elements, but it could have as many as 23 million users, according to Noster.band. Overall, these figures are peanuts compared to Meta's top-line number of users across its so-called family of apps, Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp. Meta had 3.8 billion users total in the first quarter of this year. My God. Thread's ability to lean on Meta's established accounts has led some Twitter commentators to cry foul. I don't know why. Scott Melker, host of the Wolf of All Streets podcast, described early sign-up stats for threads as incredibly misleading because of Facebook and Instagram users' ability to essentially opt in to a new feature. Beyond the written barbs, a potential lawsuit from Twitter could be viewed as a more tangible legal strike. Twitter is reportedly threatened to sue Meta accusing Zuckerberg's company of poaching Twitter employees to work on threads and trade secrets and intellectual property. End quote. <clears throat> Twitter, Twitter twat, twatter, had also recently notched a victory of its own, securing three state money transmitter licenses last week. The licenses dovetail with Musk's vision for X, the everything app, aimed at integrating payment systems into Twitter. The bad blood between Zuckerberg and Musk has been brewing for weeks. The two billionaires could potentially engage in a cage match. Yeah, Zuckerberg will wipe the floor with Elon if they do that. Yet, with little more than bragging rights on the line, the matchup between Threads and Twitter is arguably overshadows any physical confrontation with the lucrative attention of millions of users at stake. Yes. All right, so Threads. What is it? It's Twitter. Except, here's the problem. It's actually pretty refined. The user experience is clean. It works well. It does what it says it's going to do. It's not glitchy. It, honestly, and I hate Mark Zuckerberg. Well, hate is a strong word. I'm not a fan. All right, I don't think he's, I don't think he's working in the best interest of humanity. Not by a long shot. But I got to give credit where credit is due. When you, when you release a product that even though it was apparently released early, because he's taken advantage of the fact that Twitter is on, you know, it's a dumpster dumpster fire that continuously has gasoline being poured into it. It, it, it should have had a lot more, you know, I don't know, problems. And honestly, it kind of doesn't. I, yeah, am I using it? Yeah. Why? Claiming namespace, dude. Do do I like threads? No. Why? Well, because of the people that most of the people that are on it are the same people that I saw on Twitter. And I'm not talking about the same people. I'm talking about the same kind of people. The same people that are always bitching and moaning. It's the same amount of negativity. It's the same crap. Just a different different app, different day, different week. 
It's just Twitter. But it's probably going to eat Twitter's lunch unless Musk actually follows through and can prove that Mark Zuckerberg poached and then used former Twitter employees' knowledge of Twitter to make threads what it is right now. If he can prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Meta's going to have to close down threads. Now, another word on this, what well, what was it? The Wolf of All Streets uh, saying, saying that the uh, statistic of 93 million users is a misleading stat. I don't think so. And the reason is his, his reasonings, Scott Melker's reasoning here is that, well, you, if you're already an Instagram user, you can just opt in. What's the problem with that? I have, I have a podcast and then I've got a, you know, a listener base. It's small, but it's still a listener base. It, you know, it's, it's going to be like no Peter McCormick or, you know, rabbit hole recap amount of user base, but it's, it's a listener base. And then I launch circle P and then all of a sudden people decide to opt in and start buying, you know, maple syrup from maple trade. By the way, uh, bees nerds, I forgot to tell you we're, we're out of maple syrup and almost out of soap in either event. Um, you know, and then there's, you know, Dubrovko and then there's she, she, those are the only three people in the circle P yet, you know, at least two of those vendors have gotten sales directly because they're plugging into the ecosystem that apparently is being created around the, the Bitcoin and podcast. How is that not fair? How is that just not leveraging what you built? I don't, like I said, not a fan of Mark Zuckerberg, but honestly, I would think he would be stupid if he weren't to just put a little button on Instagram that says, hey, you, do you want to go over to threads? And it makes it almost flawless, almost seamless, damn near frictionless. I don't see a problem with that. Now, for those of you that think I'm raw rawing threads, I'm not. I, I really, really, really am not. However, like I always tell everybody, I don't care if it's one of the most hated platforms on the face of the planet. You might want to claim your namespace. Even if you never use it, just get, you know, do the sign up, claim your namespace, say hello world, write your, you know, I don't know, your your credentials down into a notebook so that you can get on it later on because you know you're going to forget your password that you used to sign up for it or whatever. Just get on it. Why not? And and you see what see what's going on. Because I think that what really what I'm still waiting for is a moa.party style application that allows whatever it is that I do on Noster to be sent over to both Blue Sky and Threads. I, w- I want to populate those things with what's going on in Noster because not, honestly, Noster is the only place where there's any real positivity left in social media. Everything else is a dumpster fire. But that doesn't mean that, that I'm some kind of bastard for going over to threads and seeing what the hell's going on. Only the worst command, battle commander on a field of battle would not go send out a reconnaissance platoon to go see what the hell the enemy is doing. If you, if you hear a, 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 like a twig snap in the forest and you just don't even spend the time to turn your head to look around, you may not see the bear standing behind you. 
I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. Now, speaking of bears standing behind you, uh, they are not going to be able to break Bitcoin. And neither are ordinals or inscriptions or BRC20s. They just can't break Bitcoin. This one, Roy Scheinfeld, Bitcoin Magazine. The more wonderful something is, the more passion it will arouse. Bitcoin is among the greatest wonders of the late modern world, so Greg Foss is understandably very passionate about it. So passionate, in fact, that he dropped 11 F-bombs in 31 seconds out of concern for its future, and this, despite the fact that he's Canadian. Which is why a stalwart Bitcoin proponent so concerned? Because two guys in cheap wizard costumes did a cringy Fortnite dance? Surely the stakes must be higher. According to some, there is a battle underway for the future and soul of Bitcoin. According to others, we've just gained a fun, nerdy, and innocuous way to play with Bitcoin that makes it even funnier and nerdier, though no less revolutionary. Ordinals and inscriptions in the BRC20 protocol are the bones of contentions here. Ordinals allow individual sats to be identified. Inscriptions allow objects like text, images, and data files to be written onto them. And BRC20 allows second-order tokens to be minted directly onto them, like an Ethereum Lite. In effect, they introduce storage as a new use case for the Bitcoin blockchain in addition to its existing and principal use as a ledger for currency transactions. These features are affecting block sizes, transaction fees, and validation times, so they're not inconsequential. The bone of contention is what they mean for the future. Are they pathological like a tumor? Do they offer a competitive advantage like chlorophyll and claws? Or are they just harmless and benign like male nipples or that little dangly thing at the top of your throat? Of the recent developments in Bitcoin listed above, ordinals came first. Casey Rod Armour, the guy who invented ordinals this time around, sought to devise stable identifiers that may be used by Bitcoin applications. In other words, he wanted to index sats by giving each one a serial number that would survive across time in UTXOs. Of course, giving each sat a unique identifier means that they are no longer perfectly fungible because they no longer are strictly identical when applying the ordinal convention. Just like the Library of Congress classification system for books and research libraries or URLs for web pages, ordinals makes each sat unique and retrievable. Identifiability affects fungibility without eliminating it. Inscriptions are the second controversial recent development in the world of Bitcoin. The Ordinal Theory Handbook gives a marvelously succinct definition of inscriptions, helpfully relating them to ordinals. Quote, Inscriptions inscribe sats with arbitrary content creating Bitcoin native digital artifacts, more commonly known as NFTs. These inscribed satoshis can be transferred using Bitcoin transactions, sent to Bitcoin addresses, and held in Bitcoin UTXOs. These transactions, addresses, and UTXOs are normal Bitcoin transactions, addresses, and UTXOs in all respects, with the exception that in order to send individual sats, transactions must control the order and value of inputs and outputs according to ordinal theory." Of course, Bitcoiners are far too sophisticated to get suckered into all that bored ape nonsense. If we were to copyright cartoons on our blockchain, we'd do wizards instead of apes. I mean, apes? Come on. Whatever. Think of inscriptions like uh, blockchain tattoos. Some people are going to love them. Others are going to disdain them. 
the world and the witness data of a transaction is big enough for both. The third recent development in Bitcoin is the BRC20 protocol, which lets people mint and distribute tokens according to predefined parameters. These tokens are written as inscriptions onto sats marked with ordinals, which brings us full circle. These three features allow users to create digital artifacts slash NFTs and to use the Bitcoin blockchain to distribute and trade them. So how's it going? Not surprisingly, some people are attracted to particular numbers like 1, 7, 69420. So some sats are coveted because ordinals have made them rare. Although if you think about it, each ordinal number is unique. So each one is exactly as rare as the others. There is also the market for BRC20 tokens, many of which are just second order Bitcoin. For example, the OG token and the PIZA token both have a supply of 21 million, just like Bitcoin, and at one point had market caps of around $10 million. The upshot is that one, sats are now uniquely identifiable according to a new convention, which is broken by the way. Two, people can add data to sats. And three, token minting algorithms are a kind of inscription data so people can mint tokens on the Bitcoin blockchain. You know, pausing to say that we had that with colored coins, just saying, you might want to look into that. It's important to note that while ordinals, inscriptions in BRC20 are recent developments in how Bitcoin works and how we use it, They're not really innovations because they're not really new. Something like Ordinals was proposed under the name BitDNS back in 2010. Using OpReturn to store strings of data on UTXO goes back nearly a decade. And minting second-order tokens on the underlying blockchain is basically the idea behind Ethereum, which isn't really new. Hat tip to Giacomo Zucco, who took a deep dive into this in a presentation he gave in Prague. Ordinals. Inscriptions and BRC20 tokens are, of course, controversial, though some love them. As the transaction fees of recent months attest, others are bemused or annoyed. Even the guy who invented BRC20 himself said, these will be worthless. Please do not waste money mass minting. Okay, but worthless isn't a synonym for evil. Some people think tattoos and Big Macs are worthless. Other people love them. So what's the big deal? Opposition to Bitcoin's new features usually stems from the supposition that one, ordinals and inscriptions make Bitcoin less like money. Two, they make transactions more expensive. Let's deal with the first, nope, let's deal with the last point first. Thanks in part to ordinals, the number of transactions in the mempool has increased by about two orders of magnitude and the data in the backlog has increased about 150 times. The effects are ambivalent. On the one hand, more data per transaction increases the storage and compute burdens for node operators for which they receive no compensation. Not great. On the other hand, more data to compute means higher fees for miners. In fact, the average on-chain transaction fee reached $30.91 recently. High on-chain transaction fees are not evil. In fact, high fees are a good thing. They incentivize miners, which attracts miners and spurs them to invest, which keeps hash rate high and makes Bitcoin even more secure. That's about as evil as a St. Bernard carrying a cask of brandy. Moreover, high on-chain fees merely reinforce the different use cases between on-chain Bitcoin and sats on the Lightning Network. On-chain payments have arguably never been well-suited for quick microtransactions because they treat small and large transactions pretty much the same. 
By contrast, lightning fees are proportional to the transaction amount. If you're paying two or three or ten times the price of your beer or pizza in transaction fees for an on-chain payment when you could be paying one one-thousandth of it on lightning, you're doing it wrong. If on-chain fees are inhibiting you from paying with Bitcoin, then you should probably take advantage of lightning's proportional fees. If lightning fees are inhibiting you from paying with Bitcoin, then you should probably take advantage of the one-size-fits-all on-chain fees. As for whether Bitcoin is still money in a world of ordinals, there are a couple of ways to answer that question. First, we could comb through various definitions of what money is. Come up with the ultimate list of criteria and use it to evaluate the Bitcoin white paper and all subsequent protocols. Aristotle would be proud, but the answer would be unnecessarily theoretical as well as abstract. Alternatively, we could actually observe what people are doing out there in the world. However sensible this new use case is, people like inscriptions and are willing to pay for them. Whom are they paying? Miners. How are they paying it? Transaction fees. What are the miners doing with the transaction fees? Reinvesting some to cover the cost of mining more Bitcoin. Where does that Bitcoin go? From the miners, out into the world, where it then circulates. And there we have it. Payment and circulation. People pay miners. Miners pay people. They're using Bitcoin. Ergo, Bitcoin is money. We found the essence of currency without a dictionary. Sorry, Aristotle. In other words, Bitcoin is still money, but the Bitcoin blockchain can also be used for storage. Note the Boolean operator money and storage, not money or storage. Indeed, adding new sensible use cases might be a prerequisite for any currency from this point forward. The question is merely what counts as sensible, but time and the market will tell. So let's return to the original question. Are ordinals, inscriptions, and BRC20 good or bad for Bitcoin? Or are they just a new feature of the world that we'll adapt to without much consequence? Well, these functions weren't at the top of my personal list of priorities. I can't say that taproot wizards or ordinal tokens are really making the world a better place. But I don't fear these developments either. They raise fees, and higher fees have beneficial side effects on the blockchain or for the blockchain. What's good for Bitcoin is good for the world, whether it's intentional or not. And they reinforce the case for Lightning as a low-fee means to use Bitcoin as money for smallish, everyday purchases and transfers. Generally, what's good for Lightning is good for Bitcoin, which is good for the world. Wizards, gifts, and subsidiary subsidiary tokens can't really do much harm, so I'm just going to stay cool, stack sats, and continue making Lightning as good as it can be. So that's the end of the article. Yeah, I kind of, I honestly, I tend to agree with all this. And here's the reason why. Let's say that ordinals came out in, you know, ordinals inscriptions, BRC20. And by the way, that's not going to be the end of it. There will be at least a couple more, if not more than that. And they really were absolutely, totally evil. And, and like Udi Wertheimer would like to be able to say, but really can't and still be truthful about it, that it broke Bitcoin because he's, he said that he broke Bitcoin, which is complete bullshit because TikTok next block motherfucker in either event, let's say that it did break Bitcoin. Well, that means Bitcoin deserved to be broken, but it hasn't broken Bitcoin. Okay, so let's say it did. Well, we've got to start over from scratch. We've got a template. 
We almost had it. We almost had it. We'll, we'll, we'll spin it up again. And this time we'll guard against ordinals, BRC and BRC 20 and inscriptions. That's not going to work. That, that won't work because if it's not ordinals, inscriptions and BRC, it'll be something else. Humans have this innate ability to find ways around systems and obstructions more than any other creature on the face of this planet. That's why we can do so much good as well as so much damage in a very, very short amount of time. Right now, we've been choosing to do a lot more damage. Pretty much the last 7,000, maybe 10,000 years speaks to that. But there's also examples of groups of people doing a hell of a lot of good on the earth as humans. That's beside the point. It doesn't matter. For the people that say we've got to stop ordinals and inscriptions and BRC20, first of all, you can't do it without a hard fork. And if you hard fork it, I'm not going on your chain. And most of the Bitcoin maximalists probably won't either. Even the guys that are just as pissed off about ordinals and inscriptions as the guy who actually wants to make this a hard fork to stop ordinals. You make that hard fork, somebody else is, well, if there's anybody interested in going over to that hard fork, good luck. They're just going to do the same thing. It's just going to be different. You have to go with what we've got. Ordinals, inscriptions, and BRC20 are not breaking Bitcoin. I I can make a a transaction for 13 Satoshis per V-byte. Guys, is that like 25 cents or no, that's not even 25 cents. It's like, I don't know what it is. It's so cheap. I don't care. And if, if it gets, if, if the shit gets out of hand, more layer two will come on. Don't, don't freak out about all this stuff. All right. Just don't freak out. Now there's one other one that I want to do, uh, right here before we go. I'm trying to keep these uh, shows closer to an hour because I was getting into the hour and a half, uh, thing right before my vacation, but Donovan Choi finishes us off with this one from it looks like good game <clears throat> actually it well it's from decrypt but it also it looks like it might be from good game i don't know whatever ai will make games faster cheaper and better according to the ceo of unity now for those of you who don't know what unity is unity used to be a very free and then it became a extraordinarily cheap game engine that gained in its capabilities to the point that it is now a major contender against things like Unreal Engine and the Far Cry Engine and a couple of the other game engines that are out there. It's it it's if you ever want to if you want to get into gaming, I would use Unity. I honestly would. I'm not a fan of Unity CEO because they pulled him over from Electronic Arts if I remember right. And we all know what a shit show electronic arts turned out to be in either event. Donovan Choi, let's get into what he writes. The most impressive video gaming worlds take hundreds of game designers, graphic artists, and musicians many years to create. Generative artificial intelligence, or AI, will drastically cut that time down by roughly five to ten times, predicts Unity CEO John Riccitello. Riccitello reflected on the future of gaming in the age of AI for a recent Associated Press report. From the way, <clears throat> excuse me, from the way 
the sun reflects off of a blade of grass to how in-game non-playable characters behave, generative AI can efficiently streamline the whole design process. He said this can apply to every single line of dialogue, environmental detail, and lighting effect in big gaming titles like Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto. Not only that, he added, video game testing, fine-tuning, and debugging could be conducted much faster by AI tools that could simulate in-game scenarios within a fraction of the time that it would cost developers. Quote, it's going to make games faster, cheaper, and better. It's already happening, he said to the news outlet. Still, the potential of AI has led to widespread anxiety around job stability. Hollywood TV and film writers with the Writer Guilds of America have been embroiled in a weeks-long strike to address concern surrounding the impact of AI tools on their jobs. Earlier this year, meanwhile, an open letter that was signed by the likes of Tesla CEO Elon Musk and co-founder of Apple Steve Wozniak called for a six-month pause in the development of AI systems more powerful than OpenAI's GPT-4 citing risks to humanity. Oh, bullshit. Similarly, if generative AI could perform much of the tasks that workers do now, might that mean mass layoffs in the industry? No, says the Unity CEO. Rather than leading to mass job displacements, Riccatiello, or however you pronounce his name, said he believes it would supercharge the industry and help create the same kinds of high-quality AAA gaming titles at a much faster rate. Quote, I don't think anybody's job on the creation side is going to be taken by AI, but it will get taken by a human using AI. Those people are going to be more productive and they're going to just force multiply their ability to realize what they can conceive. Riccatello told Singular in a podcast interview, quote, the most ambitious companies are going to use AI to make things even more entertaining and more engaging than ever was possible before, he added. <clears throat> Unity software is used in at least 70% of mobile games today. The company itself has announced its own generative AI tools, Muse and Centus, which are set to launch globally for developers later this year. Muse is a chat GPT-like platform that allows game designers to create real-time 3D applications and experiences using text prompts. Centus is designed to introduce AI models into any gaming platform where Unity is used from mobile and PC to home gaming consoles. This allows video games to create autonomous NPCs, non-player characters, that behave and interact like real-life persons. Unity isn't the only one in the generative AI race. Companies like Roblox 2 have announced plans to create their own proprietary AI tech, which would enable its own creators to invent more emergent gaming experiences. All right, so that's the end of the article. When I say do not sleep on AI, I mean it. Okay, so any of you, if any of you guys out there are gamers, how many times like were you playing, a, I don't know, a massively multiplayer online game, right? All the vendors, like let's, I can't even remember a name of a good one. Um, Morrowind. I don't know that uh, there's a lot of them that I haven't played, but I have played a lot of them. I haven't played in a long time, but there's vendors that will sell you swords or I don't know, ray guns, depending on your genre of game. And I always wished that there was a, you know, a good way for those things to present themselves as more than just the non-player character that they were. This is going to do that. It's already doing it. And moreover, Quest 
generation has been a thorn in the side of almost every major game developer since the days of Ultima Online. And we're talking the early 90s, guys, is when this game came out. And if you don't know what Ultima Online is, it was the online, massively multiplayer online gaming version of the Ultima series that was wildly popular in the 1980s, right? There was like seven iterations of that thing. And then they kind of figured out a way to make it all a world and where thousands of people could be on servers and there were vendors, but there was also quests and they kept trying to do quest generation and it never ever quite worked. And that's not the only game platform that quest generation was tried on. It always fails. It always sucks. It's not what you think. It's always broken. AI is going to end up fixing that. Because the only way up until this point that you could actually generate a real interesting quest was to have a game master or GM on one of these games actually driving in real time, actually being on another, you know, computer, talking to the player and generating a quest for them, setting up situations where they could go on that quest. It just, it's... It that's you're not going to pay somebody to do that, but a game will end up being more engaging with an AI driving quest generation, NPC interaction, and all kinds of other stuff. Now, here's the problem with what John Riccatello was saying about nobody's losing their jobs unless you just refuse to interact with AI. Yes, they will, because the the what he's not seeing is the fact that so much content is going to be generated that they're going to have an ever decreasing slice of the gaming world pie because now, now everything is going to end up being democratized. So anybody in their garage can pretty much come out, not just today, but later on, will be able to come out with something that is a fascinating game. How many games can you play? Uh, You see what I'm saying? So as the content stream, the the hose that is content, whether it's movies, video games, you name it, as that orifice of that hose, the exit port of that hose increases in radius and the amount of mass pumped through that hose increases as well, you're going to have, you're going to literally blow people away like, you know, riots in France where they just turn a high pressure hose on people, they'll scatter. They'll, they'll, they won't know what to buy. And since every game is going to cost 60 bucks out of the fucking gate, there's going to be less and less people buying it, which means what these game companies are going to make less and less revenue on the back end. So it's going to be very specific game companies that survive this onslaught, whether they're a company or whether there's somebody really knows what they're doing in their basement. It's still it's not it's not a cure all in fact it's going to cause a whole lot of damage and this is what i this is what i've been trying to tell people about artificial intelligence it's not to be scared of you should not be scared of this stuff you should be watching it and you should be maybe not concerned as much as wary of where this thing can go. How will it affect you? How will it affect you in retail? How will it affect you at your job? How will it affect you in your consumption of media in general? 
These are things that you should at least have on your mind because this there's there's no six month moratorium coming. And even if it did, it wouldn't matter because everybody in their basement on huggingface.org or whatever is going to be training their own AIs and releasing their own AI-based agents. If you're not listening to the sticks breaking behind you in the forest, you will not know where your potential enemies are. I highly recommend you send out reconnaissance forces in mass as in start watching the shit actually spend time trying to figure it out okay and yeah that's gonna do it for the morning roundup dad joke time when when does a joke become a dad joke by the way when it becomes apparent Remember, get a hold of at Oak Grove on Noster and get prepared for uh, the uh, the show on Black Soldier Fly Larva. Dubrovko, a.k.a. Oak Grove, is selling uh, uh, Black Soldier Fly Larva. Uh, I'll have a show this week that tells you why you want them, what to do with them, what they are capable of doing, and way more. There, There's so much to this. It's, it's almost even more expansive than what you can do with... Uh, black locust trees. I'm not lying here, guys. I'm not lying. So be on the lookout for that later on this week. Um, let's see, is there anything else? Oh, Maple Trade, if you're still listening, get a hold of me on Noster just to say hi. I hadn't really seen you over there in a while. And for the rest of you guys, if you refuse to claim your namespace on threads because you just don't like Mark Zuckerberg, then you're in a forest and there are critters and creatures around you that can do you harm and you're not aware of their presence. It doesn't mean that you have to use it. It just means that you might consider getting over yourself long enough to figure out how it works, who's on there, what it's doing, how it might affect you, and how we can bring people from there over to where they really belong, and that's on Noster. Except for the assholes. They can stay there and, you know pound sand for all I care. That's, <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Um, see what, is there anything else? Nope, nope, nope. Uh, I'll, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.